Welcome everyone to a special edition of Generally Irritable. I'm super excited to be joined today by Dr. James Lindsay. He's here in Vermont talking to folks about uh, Marxism, critical race theory, and how these things are harming our educational system, how they've kind of infiltrated uh, you know, education, healthcare, all of these different areas um, of our lives and how how it's affecting us. Uh, what, is, what is this Marxism? What are these theories, the gender theory, the queer theory, the race theory? How are these things affecting your life, your kids' lives, and just generally what it's doing to the social fabric of America? Um, is that a pretty good summary yeah, of, of what you're doing? Yeah. Okay. It, you know, I, I've been talking to folks out on the campaign trail and around and and i say i said something to somebody the other day i said oh james Lindsay, uh you know he teaches about crt and they said what's crt and i said i can't believe that there's anybody left on earth who does not know what critical race theory is and how have you not heard about this and so when you're out talking to folks when you're traveling the country educating people are you finding that there's like tons of people know about this and they are concerned about how it's affecting or are you finding more people that aren't really sure what's going on don't know anything i find that everybody knows what it is mm. so it used to be a year ago i went around the country they have talks all around the country then the primary talk i was asked to give is what is critical race theory mm. and now i'm never asked to talk about that in fact i'm usually somebody else is, is speaking and is able to give a better summary of critical race theory than I could have given a year or a year and a half ago. Okay. And so my general sense is that everybody kind of knows, almost everybody kind of knows what it is now. They realize that it's some weird theory of race that came out of academia. They realize that it seems to have kind of this Marxist flavor to it. I don't know that they have the, the, the chops or the courage to say it is just race Marxism, Marxism using race in place of class to divide society and try to establish whatever it is, you know, level of tyranny and, and socialism that they want to uh, establish. Okay. But generally speaking, people are informed on the issue. They realize that the issue is present. They realize that they've been lied to about the issue tremendously. Yeah. They realize that it is unambiguously in the schools and that the schools are unambiguously denying that fact, uh, despite the fact that they can see plain as the nose on their faces that yes, there it is. Um, so my sense is that people know what it is now. Uh, they understand it is a, uh, what, how do I, have I phrase it? At the beginning of race Marxism, I give three definitions for critical race theory. So the, I'll try, try to do them kind of backwards okay. because they get a little more sassy from the beginning in reverse order. So the, okay. the last one I give is that it's the belief, it's a, it is a belief system. Critical race theory is a belief system that takes the, the racism created by white people for their own benefit is the fundamental organizing principle of society. So white people set up society to benefit white people and to continue doing this forever. And that's actually how society is organized. And critical race theory is this belief that that's true and that they have the only way to figure that out and explain it and change it, as a matter of fact, because it's an activist thing. Right. The sec that's the third definition I give. The second definition I give is it's a neo-Marxist theory of race. It's a neo-Marxist conflict theory of race. The races okay. are split. There's a conflict across mm -hmm. the division line and some have more advantages than others and so the people in the lower class have to be awakened to want to overturn the system the people in the upper class to the degree possible have to be awakened to try to be their allies to help them mm. and it's a neo-marxist theory of race okay. so and then the, the 
functional one that I give, and I just simplify, it's the simplest definition. Yeah. It's true, it's all most normal people need to know other than that it has Marxist origins. Is that critical race theory is calling everything you want to control racist until you control it. Yeah. That's all it is. It literally, it, it does feel that way. It, it's all it does. And, and one of the, what's been so confusing to me is the, the folks pushing critical race theory type beliefs, right? Because they deny that it's happening, right? So the schools deny that they're teaching critical race theory. But at the same time, if you say that you don't want them teaching kids that there's a difference inherently between the white kids and the black kids or, or whatever, well, then they say that you're racist because, well, we need to teach that black people are oppressed uh, or, uh, you know, any non-whites basically are victims of white people and that we're oppressing them and you need to acknowledge your whiteness and that it's a problem. So. They, they on one hand say that they're not teaching it, and then on the other hand, it's very obvious that they are teaching it. Yeah, that's because they play a little, a little word game. Marxists are really good at one thing in particular besides seizing power and ruining things, yeah. and that thing is playing word games. So when they say we're not teaching critical race theory, they mean they're not pulling out a graduate level law cool. textbook and teaching people straight out of Kimberly Crenshaw or Richard, Richard Delgado or, uh, you know, uh, Derek Bell or something like this, these kind of academic fathers and mothers, I guess, of critical race theory. Yeah. They're not teaching critical race theory as an academic subject the way it would be taught in a law school. What they're doing is they're taking the principles of critical race theory, that we have a stratified society by race where the white people have organized society to their benefit, keep everybody else out, et cetera. They're teaching those principles that white privilege is real, that white privilege is a problem, that the answer to this is more equity, which is a redistribution of shares in society based upon group membership. They're teaching the principles of critical race theory. They're teaching the mindset of critical race theory. They're forcing people to conform to the thought pattern of critical race theory. But no, they're not breaking out the textbook and teaching this is what critical race theory is. So it's a word game that they're playing. And they play it surprisingly effectively because a lot of this stuff is complicated. Yeah. And a lot of the methods that they use to do critical race theory in schools can be, I mean, sometimes they're very overt. They separate kids by racial caucus and they teach one group about privilege and one group about oppression and yeah. yada yada. But it can also be very subtle, which is that they might have them just read lots of books about the civil rights movement or about slavery or whatever. And then they constantly kind of pick at, how does that make you feel? This is the country you live in. Did you know that's your ancestors that did this? They're just like you. You benefit from the privilege that they had. And so sometimes it's very subtle. Yeah. And you say, well, oh, you just want to object to a book about Martin Luther King or Ruby Bridges or whatever. But no, it's the it's not the, the text itself. It's the way that it's being presented, presented. in order to, to the, the model is called generative words model. It comes from a Marxist educator. They're bringing a generative topic to get the idea started. And then they, they uh, guide the dialogue around that idea to, a ra to raise the consciousness that critical race theory exists to raise, which is this belief that race works that way. What, what I find the sort of confusing about this and how it works, and, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit. You know, my husband is black, okay? And his mother grew up in a segregated racist town in upstate New York. Okay, so, and this was, you know, back in the 50s, 60s. And so there was, there was clearly a problem. It's not like any of us are saying racists don't exist or that racism has never existed, right? Like nobody's yeah. stupid enough to argue that. Right. So, but she grew up in this town, right? And she said, I'm not gonna tolerate this. Screw you guys. She joined the military 
got out of that sick racist town, got herself educated, gave herself an opportunity, got married, started a family, moved, you know, middle class now, raised her son, uh, made education a top priority. If he was doing bad in school, he had to do summer class, you know, he would run the numbers, blah, 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 et cetera. And now my husband is an entrepreneur, he's very successful, he's a filmmaker, um, which you have to have a tremendous amount of resilience and determination, yeah. especially as a dark-skinned black person in Hollywood. Okay, you can't have fear. You can't see yourself as a victim and expect to be successful, right? right? So his mom grew up in this crappy place. She said, education is super important. I'm gonna teach my son about our history, but I'm not gonna let him feel like a victim or whatever. So how do these people account for people like that, circumstances like that, super successful, wealthy, rich black people who have, you know, Clarence Thomases and Larry Elders who have come out of terrible poverty and made something of themselves. How do they account for that? They have two ways and you're not gonna like to hear either of them. One of them is that they're the exception to the rule. And so white people like to trot out the exception to the rule for people who like the white supremacist society we have like to trot out the exception to the rule. Oh, I have a mother or a grandmother that smoked 10 packs a day and lived to be 105. Yeah. And they trot out, the, so they, maybe it's the exception to the rule. Okay, so it's lucky that it. she's awfully lucky that she had the ability to do that. But it goes worse, though, because then okay. by doing that, she abandoned the solidarity. Oh, race with other traitor. people. Yeah, so she became a race trader by doing so. And I grew up in Appalachia, in southern Appalachia, although I also have family here in northern Appalachia. And so I'm very kind of familiar with that, you know, you betrayed the family, you betrayed the mountain kind of closed-knit community mentality. Yeah. It was all around me growing up, um, but not in a kind of racial context, in a, you know, mountain community context, an yeah. Appalachian context. And so you know, the people who leave and go get educated are traitors to the family or traitors to the mountain or traitors to the community or the church. And so there's that aspect. Then there's the other side, which is that she must have acted white. She must have decided to adopt these <laughs> elements of white culture that white people value and benefit. And therefore, because she acted white and, and adopted these elements of whiteness culture, the, the, they actually call it seeking white reward. The, yes, that she she was able to rise up because she basically started selling her own uh, solidarity out. That so is, it's like a different kind of race trader, and that's literally the only explanations they have for that. So, Exception to the rule, or somebody who um, made their way by upholding the system that oppresses people who look like her. So basically, just a, a diminishing, insulting and degrading people. That's how they account for not white people who become successful. Right, but then what they do is they use projection and transference to get around it, these psychological tools. So they transfer okay. that. They say, actually, white people are the ones who forced her to do that. So there's this whole book actually <laughs> called, called Acting White, which the begins, it's a critical race theory, but called okay. Acting White. Okay. And it begins with a chapter-long discussion of Barack Obama's presidency and how Barack Obama became president. And it said that he had to act white. He couldn't come out and be authentically black. He had to act white in order to become president. And so the fault wasn't Obama's. The fault was the white privileged system that forced Obama to have to act that way in order to be able to gain success and power. And so they then transfer that degradation and that the insult onto the society itself. This is a completely um, like society-loathing, people-loathing 
ideology. There's nothing good. Yeah, and they benefit so from maintaining that racism, right? Yeah. Because their claim is that society is systemically racist. And so they're going to champion the victim of racism. And so what they need is victims of racism that they can then champion. But then what does it look like to, this is, this is part of my problem with this whole theory, right? So if you're a black, if you're a not white person, because I hate the BIPOC term, I'm yeah. like, that implies that everybody who's not white is a monolith and I just hate it. So, so basically everybody who's not white, um, if you become successful, well, you're a traitor and we're gonna diminish you as an outlier. So then how do you become successful like what does winning look like if does winning looks like destroying the existing system you don't win in the existing system anybody who wins in the existing system holds it up mm. and so far as these acronyms go by the way i understand bipoc is a rather egregious one but my favorite one is the big democratic one they trotted out in the last couple of years after covid was aanhpi or sometimes just aapi which is asian american native hawaiian and pacific islander I don't know how just blatantly racist you have to be to decide that all the people who kind of look Asian are the oh same God. race. Are you kidding? In our one block, like uh, you like know, it's almost like the beginning Asian of a Korean, a Japanese, and a Chinese walk into a bar and a oh knife fight breaks out. And I if mean, you know Asian people specific, like this is what's so stupid about it. Like we have tons of friends who are Asian or South, some South American. Like our friend Edwin, who's Puerto Rican, people will call him Mexican and he'll get all mad, right? Yeah. And cause it's a joke. And, um, and then uh, Kelly, who's Mexican, you know, they'll call her some other name. And then our friends that are Korean, Japanese, Chinese, they, they are not the same people. They're not no. from the same country. Their cultures are different. Their language is different. In China, they have this list they call the eight enemies. And the, the two of the enemies are Japan and Korea. Like they really don't, they're not the same culture. And, they're not the same. And people don't understand, like Japan invaded China. And Chinese people hate Japanese people yeah, the, because of their history. The rape of Nanking was a thing. Well, <laughs> like people just, it's like they, don't have any historical knowledge. No, AAPI, vote Democrat. Th that is- Hashtag stop Asian hate. This is like the most racist, this is what I don't understand, is this ideology and this way of looking at people and just paring them down into their skin color or their country of origin is some of the most racist crap that I've ever heard. It's even worse than that because they don't even pare them down to that. They use that as the symbol. What they actually pare them down is their politics. Do you support the progressive politics or not? Larry Elder is the black face of white supremacy, yes. right? I'm sure that nobody likes any of these Chinese Americans that are speaking up and saying how what's happening in America mirrors exactly what they experienced when they lived in Mao's Chinese Cultural yes. Revolution. You got, you know, Lily Tong Williams over here in New Hampshire nearby. She speaks yes. up about it. You got Xi Van Fleet down in Virginia. She speaks up about it. You got a number of other Chinese Americans speaking up about this around the country saying this is Maoism. Is this what's happening in America? Well, I'm sure they don't like those people. Those people are probably, yes. well, I mean, there was a thing that went around that was talking about yellow privilege and all of this stuff oh too. And then I have a, a doctor, a friend of mine that I made through the internet, so I don't know him that well, but he's a South Asian family. I think he was born in America, but he's of Indian descent. And so he's brown. Of Brown is my favorite race now, by the way, <laughs> the brown race. So he's brown. And so he went to a cardiologist, he's a cardiologist, and he went to this cardiology convention. And they were talking about how white supremacy was on the rise in cardiology of all unbelievable things that they would say. They say, look at this graph of all the, you know, pie chart of all the different races in 
cardiology in 2016 or whatever, and then here's the one in 2019 or whatever. And it's like this, the white category is just huge now. And then this guy, his name's Anish or something, he's looking at it and he's like, where am I on that chart? And they're like, oh, you're white now. He was like, I thought I was diverse. And they were like, you're the wrong kind of diversity. Because? Because their cultural values align with whiteness and because also they're successful. And therefore it is, as there's a book, a, a friend of mine, Kenny Shu wrote, I wrote the foreword to it, just a full disclosure. It's called An Inconvenient Minority, talking about the Asian minorities in the United States yep. and how they're completely inconvenient for the narrative. Just like yep. your mother-in-law is inconvenient for the narrative. Just like Larry Elder is inconvenient for the narrative. Yep. Just like Dave Chappelle who, by the way, he told his jokes about trans, you know what they said? That he told his trans jokes from a position of, I kid you not, white privilege. That's what the article said. Because, because he has money, was the explanation. White privilege means having money. Oh my God, well, but then, th then this is what's so stupid about it. Then it still ends up coming back to class. Then it still ends up just being about class. That's what it really is. It, it, they use race as a proxy for the Marxist class warfare that they were doing before. Okay. So they take all the class issues and shift them into race issues by using bad analysis and statistics. And then they claim it's a race issue because that pulls the moral levers of Americans where the class issue doesn't. Because we all know in America that the American dream exists. And if you work hard and you invest and you're smart and yeah, maybe you're a little bit lucky, then you can take yourself from a bad situation to a solid situation. And the, the class mobility in America has been a massive thorn in the Marxist side for all of the 20th century. Yeah. And so they realized at the end of the 20th century that we're way too sensitive about identity politics and that the emotional levers they can pull. I say that Marxism is, you know, you mentioned Christianity. Christianity is, if you read your Gospel of John, is a religion of logos, mm. right? The, the, the God is the logos, as yeah. John chapter one. Well, Marxism is a religion of pathos. It's how do you pull the emotional levers? How do you get people to react with preconditioned emotional responses to things? And we were sensitive with identity politics, sensitive about race. Every adult, I think, short of like a small percentage of Americans now, is remembers the bad old days of the 70s and the 80s yep. and so on where gay kids got disowned by their parents. And so now you have a generation of millennial parents that are Gen X parents who are overcompensating yes. and saying, I don't want to be that parent who disowns my kids. So now they're walking them into the newest form of conversion therapy, which changes their sex literally rather than letting them be gay yeah. uh, through, you know, hormones and operations and every yep. other thing. So they're affirming and they're, that's how accepting they are. And it, it's pulling those emotional levers and that's what it's all about. Well, and I think that you're speaking to something that, you know, we've talked about a little bit, which is that the, <laughs> I blame us, right? I blame my generation for a lot of, like my generation and, and the one just before for a lot that. of what we're seeing, right? I, we were talking at dinner last night. I, you said you're an atheist and I asked you, are, did you grow up Catholic? Yeah. And you said, yes, because so many people that I know who are atheists grew up Catholic. Yeah. I grew up in a family of Christians that are the reason why people hate Christians. And so I think we, it's like a pendulum swing, yeah. right? So, yeah. so we went from having, uh, you know, everything being a very strict, conservative, right wing, religious, you know, no room for anything to this, okay, now everything is permissible. It doesn't matter what you wanna do or what you wanna yeah. be. It doesn't matter if it hurts you, it hurts others. It doesn't matter what the long-term consequences are because if we're disciplined, that's bad. 
So instead, we're going to just be completely undisciplined and let you figure it out. Yeah, I think a great political book that I don't want to write and I don't have the skill to write right now would be kind of riff off of Ayn Rand as a mm -hmm. title, but it should be uh, Generation X Stopped Shrugging. So <laughs> instead of Atlas Shrugged, Gen X Stopped Shrugging. Yes. And then all of a sudden, you know, the world got back on track because yeah. the generation that's kind of like, eh, divorce them about everything is like, wait a minute, no, maybe stuff matters, and it starts doing things responsibly. Yes. Uh, it would be a massive change. It would be a very interesting book to see written. I don't have the skill for it, but somebody out there should capitalize that on that and really send me 2 book. or 3%. Yes, for real. Somebody absolutely should do that. Because it's, there's a line, right, where, and this is, this is what I talk to people about a lot, is as a Christian and as a conservative, you know, we've got people on our team who are, who are behaving badly. They're the kind of Christians that, are, that I grew up with, right? And I say things to them like, is that how Jesus talked to the woman at the well? The way that you're talking to pro-abortion people, as an example, calling them baby killers, is that effective in persuading people that your point of view is better? You know, is that working for you? And well, I'm gonna do whatever I want. I know. You know? And I know, it's so frustrating. And it's like, do, do you guys not understand that there's gotta be a middle ground where we, we can be disciplined and we can stand up and say no in the face of all of this nonsense, but I still love you and I still acknowledge your right to exist. And you know, cause that's my favorite. If you don't think that kids should be transitioned, it's cause you hate trans people and you don't acknowledge they should exist. Yeah, I just saw that somebody was throwing a fit about that on, on the social media. One of these ACLU guys was throwing a fit about it the other day. And I was like, I say guy, transitioned. <laughs> um, so, you know, whatever pronouns go with that. Yeah. And so uh, that's, they always create, it's again, it's that pulling of the heartstrings. Yeah. Um, you want us to not exist. No, I frankly don't care if you exist, but you're a narcissist. So if I don't care if you exist, that's as bad as you not existing. And the narcissistic injury flares right up. Uh, I, don't, I don't care what you actually wanna do. What I do care about is that you're an adult when you decide to do what you wanna do. And if you're a child, I don't think that you, if you're not old enough to, and of course their answer to this is, well, we gotta change those laws too, but if you're not old enough to consent to sex, if you're not old enough to join the military, if you're not old enough to drink, if you're not old enough to get a tattoo, if you're not old enough to you know, do any number of other things, yeah. and everybody recognizes that, you're not old enough to drive a car, maybe you're not old enough to make life-altering medical decisions for yourself, yes. and then maybe it is not a great idea to have people who have adopted something that's openly called gender ideology as the people who are deciding for your children. It feels to me like, yeah. you know, we've gone way off the track. And then who are we really affirming? Are we affirming the child or are we affirming the activist who says there are lots of people like me, you just don't know it yet. Yeah. And I don't think that we should be sacrificing children or their health in order to uh, acknowledge and affirm those activists. I, this, this is what I'm saying. I literally, was talking, I can't remember who I was talking to the other day. I said, I am so proud to be a woman. You know, I to be born uh, with what is akin to a superpower, okay? Like I can carry and develop a new human being inside of my body. Like somehow 
magically, science, whatever, uh, Jesus, whatever you want to say, like a baby gets formed inside of my body, grows inside of my body. Then I have the baby and then I feed the baby with my body. Okay. That is a miracle. That is absolutely glorious. Okay. And, and I can 100% understand why someone who is not a woman would feel uh, like it's fun to be more effeminate, to dress like a woman, to carry those characteristics. And I am fine with that. I, I support any adult wholeheartedly in that, in that decision. I just don't believe that my rights should be diminished in order to take care of someone else's feelings. Well, you see, we're dealing in social constructivist ideologies. And so, that's a big fancy word that means you're on a slippery slope. It means everything's <laughs> socially constructed. Everything's up for grabs. And, and the, if you actually go read the Marxist literature about this, they, they quote the, the German poet Goethe on this. And Goethe said, everything withers away. So the conclusion that they drew from this is, Everything is relative. Everything is socially contingent on a place, on a time, on a culture. And so everything withers away. So what they're actually saying is this slope is slippery, by yeah. the way. And so um, women played their role in this revolution already. But to now assert that, so feminism, right? Yeah. Feminism is supposed to be, if we're very generous to what it is instead of what it actually is, is advocacy on behalf of women or right. the belief that women are equal, whatever. There's these nice, yeah. fancy, what it used to be. these cute definitions they give that yeah. deny that it also has this huge Marxist element to it and how they <laughs> did things. But we'll take them, we'll take them at this word. Yeah. Well, feminism played its role. And now if you, to, to have feminism, to assert that women are equal or women have, you know, rights or that women are to be advocated for means you have to acknowledge that there is a woman. But the social constructivist train has moved down the track another station. So now by doing that, you're actually saying something conservative. You're saying yeah. something transphobic because you're saying, well, uh, you know, sex isn't up for grabs. There's something that isn't merely contingent, that doesn't wither away, yeah. that isn't relative. So that's a conservative position. So it's moved on. So you, this the, when we look at what's happened with the gender ideology, gender theory, trans, queer theory, whatever the, the whichever domain within that you want to look at, yeah. is that it's actually it used feminism like a launch pad and is left. And if you actually go back to the, this is all what's called dialectical philosophy. Yep. There's a big name for it. Yep. But if you go back to the father in the meaningful sense of this dialectical philosophy, that was G.W.F. Hegel, a German yep. guy that preceded Marx. Yes. And what did he say about individuals and movements? History uses people and then discards them. Feminism has been discarded. Women have been discarded. The social constructivist movement built on those theories has moved on, discarded. Yep. So Even black men. Black men, gay men, lesbians, all discarded. Because you can't be a gay man unless you admit that there are men. You can't be a lesbian unless you admit that there are women. It's not actually possible. So they are be in the process of being discarded. Asians, we already discussed, yep. because they're Jews. inconvenient, have been discarded. Yep. There's a book from the 90s by a woman named Karen Brodkin. It's funny, her name's Karen, called How Jews Became White Folks. <laughs> and she actually cre recreates Nazi ideology 
in this critical race theory book by explaining that Jews became white in the 1950s by throwing other racial minorities under the bus so they could be labeled white so that they could gain cultural prominence, at which point they then rose to the top of cultural prominence and started becoming the trendsetters of what whiteness is and started to hoard cultural resources from everybody else. I kid you not. You read the book for yourself. How Jews became white folks. That is literally just like a retelling of every at any time that the Jewish people have been um, demonized over since frickin' what two thousand. It's that ago. they wormed their way into privilege and then hoarded resources from everybody else, <laughs> and that's exactly what the only significant book in critical race theory on Jews that I'm aware of wow. actually argues about how Jews became white folks. Oh my gosh. Okay. That is just absolutely crazy. All right, James, Lindsay, thank you so much for being with us today. I know you've got another event to get going to. So we, we I want to make sure I'm not blamed for you being late. <laughs> it's not going to be my fault. It's her fault. It's definitely my fault for sure. Cause uh, I saw Rohan over there giving me one of these a few minutes ago. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you for coming to Vermont. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Um, we so, so many times we hear that Vermont is just a lost cause. And so speakers and politicians and folks that have name recognition don't wanna come because they're like, oh, well, you guys just, it doesn't matter anyway. And, you know, I've long been saying, we just, we need the energy here. We need the eyes here. We need people to understand that there are some of us conservatives left and they, we are fighting for this. We just need a little help. We just need a little help. So thank you again for being here today. Thank you for your time. Yeah, I'm stoked to be here. I hope I can help. I have not even given up. I maybe have given up on California, but I have not given up on Vermont yet. Good. <laughs> I'm good. glad to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much.